Welcome to A Little Idea, a series of discussions about books, how to put them together, where to take them, and how to create a story you are truly proud of. If you are someone who is looking to tell a story, or you can't rest until you've committed that story to the page, this is the series for you. So last week, we began the process of putting together a manuscript and how to overcome the challenges of completing it. This week in our second episode, it is time to reach out and take your book to publishers. What are the ways of getting a publishing deal and how do you determine what is the best deal for you? Well, that is some of the stuff we'll be covering tonight. Joining me tonight for this discussion is a very special guest, Francois McCarty. He's the head of publishing at Booktopia, but he's also worked at the likes of Random House South Africa, Hachette Australia, Simon & Schuster Australia, and more. He's been in the industry for over 20 years, and it is a delight to have him this evening. Francois, it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to A Thank Little you. Idea. Thanks, Nick. Um, so I think it's fair to say that, you know, a lot of authors, they start their manuscript, very few finish them in the context of, of that stuff, because it's, it is a huge process. But say you have got to the end of your first draft, you've, or you've done your revisions, you've completed that manuscript, and you're suddenly going, okay, now what? What is the next direction for someone who is looking for that, uh, looking to try and get their, their story to an audience? Right. Well, firstly, if you do get to that stage, um, you should give yourself a pat on the shoulder for starters, because it, it is a great achievement. Um, many people, if not most, have desires to write a book, but very few people have the discipline and the um, tenacity to sit down and actually execute on that. So um, that's, a, that's a huge achievement in its own right. And I, I would say even if, even if it never gets published, you know, in sort of the traditional way, you should be very chuffed to have done that in the first place, uh, for starters. Um, what I'd say to the person is that the thing you should not do is to ask your friends and family to read your draft. Because, um, and it's, the, it's, the inst it's sort of the, the obvious thing that many people do, but friends and family will, will usually um, feel obliged to tell you what you, they think you want to hear. Whereas what you really do need at that point in the, in the sort of creative process is a dispassionate, um, sometimes brutal feedback uh, in terms of what the next steps are, you know, what, what, what's lacking, um, where, where's the, if it's a work of fiction, where's the narrative not working or are there some characters that are underdeveloped or, uh, or, or you know, uh, plot lines that aren't working. If it's nonfiction, have you forgotten to include some critical aspects of the subject that you're covering? So, I think finding somebody to read it for you who's going to, who's qualified to do that. And a lot of people will say that they've have got editorial experience or are good editors, but edit, editing a, a manuscript, you know, is not about correcting the spelling or, you know, fixing the punctuation. A, a proper edit, especially what we would call a structural edit, is a far deeper, more a comprehensive um, part of the creative process. It's where, you know, a good editor will say to you, I'm really, you know, this character is not working for me. And I think you should basically kill them off because they're not adding anything to the plot line. <laughs> and actually this part of the story is really compelling and it's very topical. And if you can develop that part of it, 
you you know you're going to reach a much bigger audience and you need to go and rewrite and obviously that's a very big thing to ask somebody to do because a lot of a lot of writers spend months if not years of their lives crafting that first draft and when they finally finish it they think that's it i'm done you know it's it's near to perfect because I, I don't really want to look at it again but the best writers you know that i've worked with over the years are the ones who don't blink when when they've got to go back and and write another draft and take that feedback on board and it's it's hard because obviously you've invested a big chunk of your life in writing a book or you know a manuscript it's um you've got a lot of yourself invested in that you know joanne harris in her recent book 10 things about writing talks about that she says you know um when you write a manuscript you're putting a piece of your soul into that manuscript. And so you've got to ask yourself what is your soul worth you know so you've got to find that balance between um not you know over thinking uh the the process that you've already gone through and, and being able to step back from it for a while give it over to somebody which is very confronting can be quite daunting and bracing yourself for the feedback and don't you know don't fish for compliments because that's a i think a um, something that a lot of writers do do is that they, they give it to somebody and what they really want to hear is, Oh my God, I loved it. It's brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, and of course that's a natural instinct, but the, you know, truly great books don't, you know, they don't just drop out of the sky. They, they are crafted over many drafts, often with lots of pain and back and forth with, you know, an editor and it's a relationship of trust. Now, of course, if you're, you know, if you've never been published before, or even if you have, uh, you can't just necessarily call on somebody and say, you know, yes, my manuscript, can you read it? Because it's a big investment to make, you know, and, and people with those kinds of skills are actually quite scarce and their skills are worth a lot of money and, and they don't come cheap. So I think if you, if you don't already have a publisher or you don't have an agent who can help you, you might need to consider paying for that service. And, and I would say don't hesitate to do that because uh, if you get the right editor, uh, you will, you know, it's money well spent. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting you touch, on, you touch on this because there was a, with my first edition of my own, of my book, um, I had people who I at the time couldn't afford to get a, a professional editor to have a look at it. And I did the best I could with, by asking people to, people who I knew, writers, uh, other people, um, my parents. So I basically made every single mistake that you just mentioned there with that first edition. Um, but it was, and, but the comparison when I did the second edition of, of my book, it, it was huge because, um, and it was such a, a fantastically educational experience in terms of learning about the value of, of killing your darlings, but doing it in a way that actually it makes your, it, it just enhances the story so much because it gives you that, that reality of, well, Hey, this is something that could potentially really make your story even more captivating, which is fantastic. And then, like you say, when you actually then approach some um, public, uh, the like the world of publishing, uh, like a, a publisher, you have an agent or whatever, it adds so much value to, uh, to, to actually have had that professional look it over and go, this is how this uh, this book works, or this is how this book is functioned, and it's got that had that professional eye that has dotted the i's and crossed the t's, which is so valuable. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
you touched on it a little bit, but we're going to dive into this now because we have the manuscript. You've, you've now edited it or you've, you've had the chance to, for someone to have a look at it and you want to get it published. So if you're someone with very limited experience in this space, what are the options that are available to you? Well, I mean, the, the most traditional method is, is to submit it to a publisher, you know, an, uh, an established trade publisher who has a submission process and an editorial, in-house editorial or publishing team who can assess a manuscript and make a decision about whether or not it's something that they want to publish and invest in. And, and you know, that's, that's the sort of one model. Uh, that does still happen, obviously, because, you know, many of the books you see in bookshops have uh, turned into books and, and uh, that way. But that, you know, that model is in, has been shrinking for a long time. I mean, there's been, the book industry has been under a lot of pressure over the last 10 to 20 years in terms of developments in technology, uh, the proliferation of alternative entertainment channels. You know, gaming has gone into the stratosphere in terms of levels of sophistication. Uh, streaming has proliferated and, you know, binge television, you know, and we're all guilty of it you know, getting stuck into series and, uh, and watching far too much, you know, uh, video content than we would have previously and, and probably reading, you know, less than we should have. But, um, and obviously technology formats have, have also changed mm-hmm. the way in which the publishing industry works and the viability of publishing. So the growth of eBooks has been quite significant. Uh, most trade publishers will now report that that, has plateaued. Um, they report on average about 15% of volume uh, seems to be around about where a lot of the trade publishers have ended up in terms of their total ebook sales. Clearly, for some categories or genres like romance or mass market fiction, that percentage that ebooks present of their volume sales can be much higher, but, but that's an a- aggregate really across all formats. So so the model has changed a lot. So I should sort of preface, you know, the options for publishing by saying that. So what's happened is, and there's also been a lot of consolidation mm. in the international publishing sort of uh, arena where, you know, you had, uh, you know, Hodder and Stoughton used to be a separate company and Headline was a separate company and they got together and became Hodder Headline and then they were purchased by Lagardere and they became a Shet globally. Um, you know, when I was working for Random House in the 90s, um, they were a family-owned business, and then they were purchased by Bertelsmann, who merged them with their existing publishing interests, which was Transworld in the UK and the Bantam Doubleday Dell group in the US, and it, you know, became um, uh, the Random House group grew, but but it also gobbled up a lot of great imprints that used to operate autonomously, and in these sort of corporate takeovers you often find that editorial divisions become um, consumed by, by others and, and lose their independence and, and, you know, results in fewer options available. And, of course, in more recent years, you've had the Penguin Random House merger and they, in turn, uh, have purchased Simon & Schuster globally, which is it's going to result in really one large global publishing house less, you know, available for, for authors. So... The landscape is changing all the time. And then at the same time, you've had self-publishing platforms proliferate in the form of, you know, you've got Kindle Direct Publishing, you've got Kobo Writing Life, you've got, you know, 
many other self-publishing platforms that have come up. I mean, in the old days, <clears throat> going back 20 years or so, the concept of vanity publishing was, you know, uh, used to describe self-publishing that was sort of yeah. looked down upon. And that really has changed a lot. There's absolutely no uh, shame in, in self-publishing or custom publishing, as it's sometimes called, because if you have to sit around and wait for a traditional publisher to get to your manuscript and decide to publish it, you know, you might, you know, be 100 years old before that happens. And what a lot of authors have decided is they just can't wait around for that. They're going to take control of their own destiny and their own intellectual property and make it happen. And that's fantastic. And of course there are notable uh, examples of titles that have been self-published and then ended up being picked up by uh, mainstream publishers like uh, 50 shades of gray was originally yeah. self-published. That's probably the, the best example of all. Um, or Matthew Riley, I recall as well. Indeed. You know, and, and Matthew's a good example of, of an author who, has all of the qualities of, of, of success, you know, in terms of that tenacity and that entrepreneurial spirit very early on in their careers as well. So, so I think the traditional model is still the preferred model and, you know, being part of, of one of the big established publishing brands is, does have a certain element of prestige associated with it. Um, it also means you gain access to the, the infrastructure that those companies own, which is significant because it's been built over, in some cases, more than 100 years. And more importantly, the sort of supply chains. And so supply chains might sound like, you know, something rather crude to speak about in the context of, you know, creative pursuit, but you need to be very aware of the business end of publishing yeah. as an author, no matter how, you know, uh, comfortable you are with that or not. Because access to the market is really what makes all the difference. Being able to reach those consumers, develop awareness in the minds of consumers who do read in those, in those genres that your book has been written in, those are critical and, and they're not, they don't come cheap and they have to be built over a long period of time. So I would say, you know, coming back to your question about what are the ways to get published, it's, you know, you've got the traditional model and then you've got, you know, the sort of custom publishing, self-publishing option and within that, there are different sort of levels of, of publishing available. I mean, at, at Booktopia Publishing, we have three tiers. The top tier would be that traditional model where we see a manuscript that's been pitched to us, either direct by an author or from a literary agent, uh, or even from uh, a co-publishing partner in somewhere else in the world, because, you know, a lot of publishers sell rights to other territories, and um, it's a very good pathway for publishers to find new titles. Uh, that's the one option. And the second option is where we, we actually have a custom imprint called Noble Books that we use to publish, um, where the author actually takes the risk on the cost of, of the publishing services associated with producing the book and creating that physical, you know, um, format or, or the ebook format for that matter, or the audio, um, and then providing access to the market, because that's really important. If you don't have a distribution uh, option at your disposal as an author, you can, you can write and publish the best book in the world, um, but it won't reach the audience. And the technical aspects of how that works and how that sells through um, is, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's the metadata, the actual sort of digital data associated with the book, um, you know, the ISBN, the bibliographic data, the, you know, the pricing information, 
that all has to go into countless databases around the world yeah. for that title to become discoverable through online retail channels and, and including uh, into actual bricks and mortar bookshops. And then the third tier that, that I refer to would be would be uh, you know the sort of pure self publishing where the author just feels really strongly about having the physical book in hand. And um, even if they're only going to sell 50 copies to their friends and family, that's, it's just something that's really important to them. And that's entirely valid. And uh, in that instance, you, you know, you would pay for the, for the, for the services associated with creating into a book, but you may not be able to find a distribution channel into the market and it may not be for sale in, in bookshops. And, you know, you've got print on demand, which then sort of falls into place and provides that, that uh, pathway to the consumers. If somebody wants an actual physical printed copy of the book, they can order it from any one of, you know, uh, many different reseller channels. And that book will be printed. I mean, the world's largest print on demand group is, is the Ingram owned lightning source, which is very well known, in, you know, in the, the book community. Uh, most resellers, uh, like your Booktopias or your Angus and Robertsons or your Amazons of the world, list all of those titles for sale on their on their websites. And if somebody orders it, it actually gets printed within hours and dispatched, and, and the person can have that book within a week or two, um, as opposed to something that might you know already be in stock. So, it's from the consumer's perspective, they don't know nor care where the book has come from or when it's been produced. They've, they've got the copy that they can read. Obviously, the digital channels uh, formats are a lot more immediate you know if you've got an ebook edition available the person can download it and start reading it within minutes or download the audio um, but yeah those are really the sort of major pathways to market yeah look it's look it, thank you i know i'm aware it's a very complicated question because there are so many so many options out there and um i love the the, the points that you make about about you know talking thinking about this because it, at the end of the day it, it for for authors out there it is a business the business factor is a huge part of it as much as you it, it some authors might feel very icky about saying that or admitting to it the the one thing that i have often found and i think it's off the back of of this time my you know that i've been you know do, doing this new edition is whenever people ask me hey what's the like how like how do you have you been able to do all of this and like you know get into do signings in bookshops and doing interviews or or meeting people and the simple answer i say is like you've got to think about it you know when you are presenting your book just the mindset of this is the book and this is why it's worth your time, which in that sense, you have to kind of really make sure your business model really makes sense. Um, And it's, and I, and honestly, I think it's something that authors should be incredibly open to because you, it's another, essentially another way of storytelling. It's a way of, you can, can describe the book however you like um, through the way that you market it and aim it at the particular audience you, you, you want to. It's just a real dotting your I's, crossing your, your, your T's thing. I want to kind of touch on these particular, these kind of options that you've presented here and kind of do a little bit of a pro and con situation with each. Um, I'm glad, thank you so much for mentioning Joanne Harris, by the way. Um, I was very lucky enough to be able to, to interview her for the Booktopia podcast last year. And I know that she, you know, she does a lot of advocation for, uh, you know, potential change in the industry. And she, I know that she has got some concerns about, 
the way things have been changing over the last couple of years. Um, we'll, we'll start first with that traditional sense that you, that traditional model that you're talking about submitting to a major publishing house. Um, if you are an author, what's, what are the pros that come with doing that? What are the cons with that, uh, with going in that route? Yeah. Well, I mean, the pros obviously come back to the, um, the scale that, that the big companies have in terms of their, their um, global reach, their marketing and publicity uh, infrastructure that, you know, many of them can still afford to have good in-house editors, whereas a lot of publishing companies over the years have, have um, gone through waves of, you know, cost cutting. And unfortunately, some of the first people who go when, when companies are doing that are the, uh, the editorial personnel. And there's really no substitute for a great editor, uh, you know, significantly undervalued in the creative process. And I think the, so those are some of the cons and obviously sales infrastructure and also, you know, they're, they're the critical mass they've got with the big sales channels. So if you look at a market like the Australian market, I mean, obviously, you know, Booktopia has, is now the largest bookseller in the country, but that's partly because of the long tail model of e-commerce where you can hold, can offer 5 million titles for sale and you can hold stock of 150,000 copies in your warehouse the average bookshop has a much smaller range of titles. It's probably more like 15,000 titles in your sort of average suburban bookshop. And, and then if you look at, at some of the channels that sell very large volumes, like what we would call the deep discount stores or DDSs, which in Australia would be your Kmart, Target, Big W, you know, they sell a lot of books, but they, they sell them very cheaply and then they um, often use them to attract customers to buy other products. And so other market channels struggle to, uh, to compete with those price points, but they do, you know, they, so getting into those stores requires you to have a very big catalog and, um, and a big purse when it comes to paying, you know, co-op marketing contributions or advertising um, contributions, um, rebates, and the bigger companies tend to have the, the, the buying power to buy shelf space. On the, in, the, in those chains and those channels that can sell a lot of books. So it really depends on what kind of book you've written. You know, if you've written um, a fast-paced crime thriller, you know, in, in the vein of Kathy Reichs or Jeffrey Deaver or James Patterson or, you know, Michael Robotham, mm-hmm. you know, to mention a few of those sort of big brand authors, then you're going to want to be in those channels and your chance of getting into them is going to be so much better if you are published by one of the big companies. But then if you've written, you know, a, a beautifully crafted, uh, more literary sort of work of fiction, and you think you might be in line to win the Booker Prize, you, you might be better off working with, you know, one of the sort of smaller boutique um, publishing companies. Again, in the Australian context, you'd be looking at companies like, you know, Alan and Unwin or Text or Scribe, who are all, you know, wonderful publishers and, and have a great, track record for publishing, you know, works that are, um, you know, more thoughtful and, and, and more niche in that sense. And then they've got access to the channels that, that do really well, which would be more your chains and, and your independent book selling sector. So it's horses for courses really, but so, so those would be the con, the pros really. Um, I mean, the cons are come down to, again, 
also to scale. And then in the sense that these companies publish tens of thousands of new titles across their international groups every year. Um, yeah, so when I was working at Random House or even, you know, within the SHIP or, or the Simon Schuster sort of groups that all have big companies in, in all of the major English language countries, we would, we would probably be publishing 40 to 50,000 titles a year across the group or more. And if you think about the average bookshop, you know, uh, they're buying only a couple of hundred new releases every mm -hmm. month to be able to, to sort of restock their, their new release section and get fresh stock coming in. And they would be shown many thousands of titles every single month by the sales team members and the key account you know, managers from all of the uh, large, medium and small companies and distributors. Mm -hmm. And so they've, you know, you've got these, these funnels that are filtering out as such titles at every step of the way. And so as an author, you've got to ask yourself, if you're going to be published by Penguin Random House or, you know, Hachette, what, what is the ch sort of the chance of you being one of the lead titles that's going to be really focused on in the sales cycle every month? And it's not a criticism at all. I mean, you know, it's really just um, being pragmatic about your chance of your book being one of the 200, you know, or 400 titles shown by one of these big companies that have been filtered down from couple of thousand or, you know, or more in that month. And it happens every month, literally every 30 days. Trucks pull out the back of the, sh the store and offload, you know, pallet loads of new stock. And the old stuff gets packed up into boxes if it hasn't sold and it gets returned uh, for full credit to the publishers, which is a, a shameful way to do business, but that's the way the model works, really. Hmm. And very few titles end up being what we would call core backlist, you know, so... Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance or, you know, um, Catch-22 or Pride and Prejudice or, you know, in the nonfiction, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or Who Moved My Cheese or, you know, those are the sort of classic titles that a good bookseller should never be without in the A to Z of the fiction section or the, or the nonfiction category. But they are very few, you know, you'd be talking about, you know, a fraction of a percent of books that end up being considered core backlist. So the, con, the major con there is that you, unless you are going to be one of those 10 to 20 lead titles in the one to 200 shown by that company in a sales cycle, you will be consigned to obscurity. You'd be lucky if you become what's known as mid-list. And then there's the dreaded indent list, which is uh, an industry term that's used for titles that have been published that are not going to be actively sold or shown to the decision makers um, in the booksellers. They are just appear on a list of metadata that happens to be fed into those channels in case somebody wants to order it, they can find it on their, on their, you know, their databases. Mm. Um, so you really don't want to be there. So I think, you know, as an author, you've got to ask yourself, and, and it's, it's basically being pragmatic and being realistic about, your prospects. Um, now, having said that, uh, you know, there were 12 publishers who turned down um, J.K. Rowling. story okay. about, you know, a boy wizard at boarding yeah. school. Because <laughs> firstly, they said books on magic don't sell. And furthermore, sort of the 12-year-old category, it's really hard. It's sort of 
not quite kids, not quite YA, and you're doing it and want to do it in hardback, not, sorry, not going to work. Number 13, of course, was Bloomsbury, and, and that the rest was history. So um, there are wonderful exceptions to the sort of baggage that, you know, the, the book industry carries around and uses to make decisions. And, and so I would say, you know, never assume that the rules of engagement should apply to you, but it is worth being aware of how the industry works yeah. and, and asking yourself, what are my chances of being one of those, you know, those few lead titles? And if I'm not going to be one of them, maybe I'm better off going with a smaller publisher who's going to give me more attention and where my book's going to stand out more in their mix. Yeah. That's a no, great, great summary, great examination of it. It's, you got to, and it, I definitely agree. You've got to be honest and know, and it's again, as well as thinking about the niche of your, of your audience in terms of the, the subject matter, it's also, it has to fit similarly with, in terms of your publishing direction um, and how, and who, and it, it influences who you want to go with. How does that compare, say, for example, you met, you touched on, uh, you know, getting b- books presented to you by having a literary agent yes. um, uh, as a, as another option. So how, if you're, if you're going, for example, through an agent you, you, who you sign up with, um, how does, does that compare? Uh, does that give you any more, uh, does it give you a foot in the door? Does it make any impact whatsoever um, in comparison to submitting it just, as you, just yourself? It definitely makes a difference. Um, I mean, if you can find an agent, especially a good one, um, you absolutely should. I mean, liter- a good literary agent uh, especially nowadays, performs a lot of the tasks that used to be, you know, done in-house um, by publishers. A lot of great editors have, you know, left the publishing sector and, and, and gone into literary agencies or become agents themselves. And, and so they've got the insights in, in terms of how the business works. But what they, what they will do is they will work with you as an author to get your manuscript into the kind of shape where they really are confident it's, it's now ready to submit. Because as an author, even if you've had some editorial input, you're not necessarily in the best position to, to know whether it's absolutely ready for submission you know, to a publisher. Uh, publishers are, are inundated with, with manuscripts. Uh, and even if they have a very well-developed submission process and a very organised way of filtering it, uh, it can take quite a long time to get through, you know, all of the manuscripts that are that are being submitted, and there are just more and more people writing, uh, and so there are more and more manuscripts, especially now with the COVID crisis globally. I think a lot of people have been forced into confinement and and have finally, you know, find themselves in the conditions where they actually can write that book they've always wanted to write. So they, ironically, there's been this proliferation now. Of, of manuscripts and I think that will continue and that's not a bad thing either because good stories will always you know come out and will always rise to the top but the, uh, the an, a literary agent especially a good one can really make a difference to your prospects as an author having said that finding an agent is very very hard um, it's harder than finding a publisher because there are not that many agents around or you know and certainly not you know, um, ones that have capacity to take on new clients. So even, even especially the good ones, 
tend to be quite selective because they can afford to be. And so they've got certain things that they're looking for in an author that are different to what a publisher is looking for. You know, they're looking for somebody who absolutely can write, who's got a great, you know, manuscript um, already in hand or, or potentially a track record of already having been published and maybe they're looking to uh, move agents or looking, you know, finally get getting one. Uh, and, um, you know, so they, and they also have insights into what publishers are looking for, or what, what the opportunities are in terms of the categories that are doing very well in the marketplace or gaps in the market where a book is actually needed, but, it, you know, it hasn't been written yet. So they've got, you know, they're usually more experienced, seasoned sort of industry professionals who have a lot of things going on that, um, that give them the kind of insights that enable them to, to match a manuscript or an author with uh, a publisher that, you know, they, they know will likely like it. And that's, it's all about selling. You know, I always remind people that the entire publishing process is all about selling, whether you like sales or not. Yeah. You know, as an author, when you've written something, and you're pitching it to either a publisher or an agent or, you know, you, you're, you're selling yourself really and you're selling your work, your creative work. I mean, even within publishing companies, if an editor likes something, uh, they often have to go to an acquisition forum uh, within the company and they've got to pitch it to colleagues who might include sales colleagues and colleagues from the sort of the design department uh, and, and from the publicity department and they get feedback on it. And they've got to act as an, an initial advocate for the author and their work to get people to buy into it. And then, of course, once the book has been, you know, once the covers have been designed, the, the creative team go to a, a covers meeting and they're presenting their work and they're essentially selling their creative work in turn mm -hmm. a consensus on what's the best cover for this. And then, of course, you, then you get to the actual, you know, selling to the booksellers who are the, the gatekeepers in terms of what goes on sale um, in the bookshops or what gets merchandised on the home page or the category pages in, a, in an e-commerce environment. So there's a lot of, and then, and that's, we haven't even got to the consumer yet to yeah. try to sell, to convince. And then, you know, the publicity part of it is getting them, you know, selling to the media to get them to want to talk about a book, whether it's to review it or to interview the author. Uh, so everything is about selling. And, and so I think, it, it, it's good to understand the psychology of selling and how to influence people from an early stage, not to be insincere about it, but to understand which buttons you need to press. To sort yeah. Of get yeah. And I'd imagine like an agent like that would, would really help, especially if you have a product that you know what you're, what you're doing with. Even I'm assuming though, obviously they'd be doing things like if, if, if people would, would be worried about the financial, uh, issues that would come up with, with purchasing an agent, obviously that would be, it would, that would be something where it simply comes down to money, whether you can afford them or not. Um, well, the thing about agents is that most of them work on a commission basis. So yeah. you'd have to pay them up front to take on, uh, to take you on as an author. And um, I used to work for somebody um, who had a really wonderful turn of phrase and I, I won't use his exact language, but he used to say that a hundred percent of nothing is still nothing. Um, and so a lot of people think, oh, you know, paying an agent's commissions can range from, you know, as low as 10% up to 25%. Um, and they think, wow, you know, I've, I'm the one who's created this work and I've done, I've put my whole life into this and they're just going to take 25% of my income. 
and that's that's a very short-sighted way to look at it you know the commission that the agents earn um you know the difference between you potentially not finding a publisher at all or uh or finding you know the wrong publisher versus getting a really great deal with a major publisher and and all that you know critical mass uh, that you get behind it to sell significant volumes can be the difference between you know earning earning a couple of hundred dollars of royalties versus you know actually making a living from it and, yeah. and being able to write full time which to be honest very few authors um are ever able to do from the, the income from their writing mm. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 just it's about investment and how much you want to put in. Um, in terms Correct, of that. and you know, a good mm. agent really does earn their keep. You know, I would I would have no hesitation to recommend um, agents because you know they they look after so much. They they they're your out there fighting for your interests all of the time. Um, you know, keeping publishers honest, and um, you know looking for other way other territories to sell other languages they go to international you know trade fairs uh or they used to at least when we were allowed to travel but there's still a lot of virtual you know book fairs going on i mean i get i get daily uh, correspondence from a range of different authors or agents pitching projects to me uh because that you know that they're, they're good at what they do and they they know what kind of books we're looking for and they're working hard for their authors um, having said that, you know, uh, uh, as with anything in life, you know, having a bad agent is also not a great idea because you can, you can feel like you're in bondage to the person. And the same goes for having a bad publisher for that matter, because, you know, the publishing process and the, and the publishing agreement is a very intimate and very long-term uh, relationship. Um, I always used to joke and say that it's a bit like getting married, except, um, you know, the, uh, it's much harder to get divorced, you know, yeah. when you're an author, because, you know, if it's for the duration of copyright, that's a pretty long-term commitment. It's until t 70 years after you're dead. You know? mm, yeah. It's, it is a, it is a complicated thing. And it's looked, it's, it, it's, it's so interesting to examine and see the, the repercussions of it and examinations of it with that. Um, I know we are aware, I'm um, like kind of starting to run a little short on time, but the last kind of, uh, um, way of talking about publishing and we've already alluded to this a little bit um, is the self-publishing or your custom publishing, your hybrid publishing route. Um, what you, I love that the term you used of what it was originally referred to as, as vanity publishing. Um, yeah. It's uh, and I know that, you know, a lot of people uh, do publishing uh, this way now pros and cons of going self-publishing. Um, what, uh, and, and particularly around because there is a lot of misconceptions out there. Um, are there some that are justified or not? What are the pros and cons of self-publishing? Well, look, I mean, I mean, the, the biggest pro obviously is, is getting published versus not. Okay. And as I said earlier, you, you, life's too short now for, for authors to sit around waiting for, uh, for a publisher to fall in love with their book to the extent where they're prepared to make the kind of investment that is required to publish a book because it is significant. And so I think, and then the biggest con of course is the cost associated with it because to do it properly, you really need to spend a fairly significant amount of money. You're talking many thousands of dollars um, on an average book for uh, you know, good editorial input, especially if it's a structural edit up front, um, you know, good design for your cover, you know, good typesetting for the internals, 
the, the printing is relatively easy because there are, you know, a small group of very capable book printers around who, you know, are competitive. Um, or if you go the POD route, you know, most of the print on demand um, options now are relatively good when it comes to print quality itself. The paper stocks are still a problem for, for print on demand because a lot of the POD printers use um, a heavier paper stock that doesn't bulk up as well. You know, one has to think about these things because if you want your book to be in a bookshop, the bookseller buying it has to feel like it's a real book. And a lot of the uh, titles that have been printed using POD are, they're quite heavy and they don't bulk up really well. And they, you can actually tell at a glance, you know, without even opening the book, you can tell if it's been printed on demand because it, it, it's the weighting is a bit wrong. And, and readers, I think, are becoming you know, sort of accustomed to that because many people who are now buying POD titles, especially online, when they get the book, they don't really care, you know, as long as it's legible and, it, and the content's great, you know, uh, they, so they're being desensitized to it. But, you know, the, um, the decision makers, the buyers for, for the booksellers, whether they be at a sort of a national account level for the chains or for your individual bookshop, they're still quite fussy about, about book formats and book production and, perhaps a bit prejudiced against the POD title. So, so going the self-publishing option, especially if you're going to be using POD, that is, a, uh, these are risks you need to be aware of that will be very hard for you, if not impossible to actually get into bookshops. You'll have to consign yourself to selling mostly through e-commerce channels and resellers. And if you're comfortable with that, that's okay. And authors increasingly are. Um, the other um, cons are, are, choosing the wrong partners to work with. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times per week where we get, you know, projects coming across our desks that have already gone the whole way down that pathway, especially if, if they've, they've used, uh, you know, any one of a number of rogue, what I call rogue operators, uh, you know, both in the local and international markets who charge an absolute fortune for very poor quality outcomes. And, and, you know, a good edit is not just about a, a proofreading through it and correcting some spelling and some punctuation. Uh, you know, that, that's not at all what you're looking for. And if you're paying anything more than, you know, $500, uh, you, you have a right to expect the, you know, the quality of the editorial input to be better than just a proofread. Mm. Um, so, I mean, those are the ones that come to mind immediately. Um, there are others as well. I mean, you know, the, if you, if you, if you don't have a pathway to market mapped out, I'd say don't spend any money yet until you can find a way to get the book into the hands of consumers. Hmm. Um, because if you don't have a distributor or, you know, or somebody who can do the logistics for you to actually get those books into the hands of, of those decision makers and potentially stock onto shelves or at least stock into the warehouses for your online channels, then just having a, just having a book actually in hand is, you know, that's the easy part. The hard part is reaching, is reaching your, the market through those supply chains that I mentioned. Mm. That's really important. And then that's actually quite a hard part of the, um, the author journey as well. It can actually be harder to find a, a distributor than it is to find a publisher. 
Mm. And, you know, so that's something that's really worth thinking about. Yeah, it's, it is interesting and it is like seeing how many kind of cogs there are within, even within the self-publishing route, which is um, making sure if, if you want to do it in a professional capacity or in a, in a capacity where you, it is, you want to have it in, in, in bookshops and stuff, just doing things like making sure that your distributor is right, making sure that the product you're producing is good. And on top of it, making sure that you're getting value for your money, which yeah. I think is really valuable. Um, and, um, I think we've only got time probably for one last question. Um, and I know that you kind of pretty much have covered through this throughout this entire kind of examination of each of the, the routes available to people. Um, but if you are an author, say you have, you have your manuscript, you're there, you're, you're ready to go. It has gone through that edit. How do you determine what way is best for you in the end? Does it come down to what you actually want to achieve with your book? Yeah, I think that's a really important question to ask yourself at the very beginning of the process. And it, it's different for fiction versus nonfiction. Because if you've written a novel, um, you've told a story and you want to get it into the hands of, of people who like to read stories in that category, whether it be, you know, uh, more literary fiction or, you know, a romance title or crime thriller um, or a YA novel. Um, you clearly just want to get into the hands of people who like to read that. If you're a nonfiction author, um, you know, we find a lot of people who write nonfiction are, are experts in their subject, uh, thought leaders in a particular you know, business category, uh, and what they want is a calling card, really, to, to build their credibility as a, an expert in that field. And um, one of my colleagues refers to it as a heavy business card, which is a good way to look at it. Mm. And if, you know, if you're setting out to, to establish your credentials in a particular field and you want a book to do that, that's not a bad idea. Um, but then you need to understand that the investment that you're going to make in producing that book may never be recovered from sales of the book. Mm. And if you're comfortable with that, that's okay. And in some ways, you know, when you're looking at the self-publishing route, the same applies. Because if you think about it, you know, if you spend 2000 on, um, you know, on a good edit and a proofreading and 1500 on a cover and 1500 in typesetting, that's $5,000. And if you print 500 units at $4 a piece, which is doable nowadays, uh, that's $7,000. And you've got, you know, half a pallet of books in your garage to show for it. That's a lot of money to spend. And in the sort of traditional publishing model, if you were, you know, um, doing it for a royalty, you'd be earning between, you know, 10 and 15% of the recommended retail price is your royalty. So that's somewhere between, you know, $2.50 and $4 for a $30 book. Um, and so you, you've got to sell, well, certainly if you sold all 500 at $20, um, you're not going to recover your, your investment. Um, so you've kind of got to ask yourself, is it okay for me to do this because I've achieved my goal, which was to finish a book and I've seen it physically published and um, it's something for me to build on, but I don't necessarily have an expectation to recover all that, that investment. That's okay. If you want to make money from it, then you really need to get your head around the business end of things 
keep your cost as low as possible at every step. And obviously make sure that you can print and sell the kinds of volumes that's going to give you that return. Um, you know, and I should say that, you know, if, if you're going to work through a distributor, some distributors require a, a discount off the, the recommended retail price of up to 75%. And so, you know, you don't get those margins. The, the bookseller at the end of the supply chain gets the biggest margin, usually around 50% of the RRP. Um, publishers make very little money from, from, their, from their part of the, the supply chain, which is why, you know, uh, even a big company like Penguin Random House, you know, Marcus Dawler, the global CEO, uh, said in an interview last year that more than 50% of the books that they publish globally don't earn out, mm. you know. And so most of their, their, their profit comes from a small number of bestsellers that, you know, that, that really um, perform well beyond expectation. And so as a self-published author, you're, you know, one person and one book at a time against the machinery of hundreds of thousands, you know, um, coming out of the sort of the publishing industry. So you've got to be pragmatic about what's doable. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a, and that's a great place to, to kind of end this because it's, it's just a matter of figuring out exactly what you want to do. Um, similarly to how you're writing your book, um, the audience you want to achieve with that, with that, to get to with that book, um, publishing plays a massive part of that. Thank you so much for your, your pearls of wisdom on this. I understand it is a very, very complicated uh, topic of discussion. And for our viewers as well, be sure to check out Booktopia Publishing in the description. I'll be uh, linking them there. Um, we I hope that this episode has kind of debunked some misconceptions about the world of publishing and just how complicated it is because it can seem very intimidating from the outside. Um, but thank you so much, Francois. It's been great to chat to you about this space. Great to be with you. Thank you. Um, so for all of our listeners, tune in to episode three of A Little Idea next week. We've talked about completing that first draft. We've Tonight, we've talked about getting published. But next week, we'll delve into something that Francois was talking about a little bit more at the start of this episode, but the process of molding your book into its final form. We're going to be talking about the world of editing. So my name is Nick Wasiliev, uh, and I'm the author of When Men Cry, um, which you'll see links to down in the description below. And uh, please be sure to check out episodes of A Little Idea in our playlist as well below. Francois, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. Great, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you.